Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello, and welcome to Live Life Better, brought to you by Virgin and Penguin Living. I'm Melissa Hemsley, your guide to exploring the art of self-improvement with authors, experts and curious minds here in conversation. Spring has finally sprung. It's a time for new beginnings, fresh air and clutter busting. And that's why on this week's show, we've devoted it to spring cleaning, something which can have a huge impact on our well-being. But why does it feel so good and how can spring cleaning help us live life better? To help answer this question today, I'm joined by two fantastic authors. My first guest is Emma Gannon, an award-winning blogger, columnist, podcaster, social media guru, and author of autobiography, Control-Alt-Delete, How I Grew Up Online. Hi, Melissa. Thanks for having me. Joining Emma and I in the studio is the wonderful Sheila Chandra, a music publisher, successful singer, two-time author, and writer of Banish Clutter Forever, How the Toothbrush Principle Will Change Your Life. Hello. Hiya. So to both of you now, who here is in the middle of their spring clean or have you just started it? I don't need to spring clean. The principle of banish clutter forever was the idea that things just sort of effortlessly get done. I mean, I probably do a bit more. uh, If I'm scrubbing something, I probably do scrub it a bit harder in the spring (laughs) and, and get things clean, physically clean. But in terms of having to sort a lot of stuff out, no, it's I don't I don't need to do it. It's an ongoing ritual. In the sense that the routine I, I have going and I outline in the book uh, means that you don't have to have those one-off big blitz that are absolutely exhausting and only seem to last for three days. My ideal is to live like that all the time mm. without having to pour hours into it. Yeah, yeah. And Emma, have you had a spring clean yet? You've, I know you've been away. Have you come back renewed with with vigour? Well, I'm that person that you just said, I just had the most massive spring clean. So I moved house about three years ago. And you know, when you move into a new house, you just think, new house, new me. And it was zen, everything was, you know, my wardrobe had like three things in it. (laughs) And just over that time, I had just looked around the other day and thought, this is unmanageable. So yeah, we gave about 18 bin bags away to charities. And it made me feel a bit, a bit bad, actually, at just how much I'd accumulated. So I'm going to read your book. (laughs) and I'm going to change you need this book and actually I've learned a lot from this book because um I agree I feel bad when I have too much I feel good when I give away but I don't want to get caught in that bad good good me bad me cycle so um is there anything that you when you're deciding what to keep Emma did you have like a little checklist in your head of like what is allowed to stay Shay Gannon Well, this is the thing that I struggle with because I'm a very sentimental and quite emotional person. And if I wear something once, it doesn't matter that I'm never, ever going to wear it again. I'm just like the memories. I met someone in that dress. I danced all night in that dress. And I think that's where I need to kind of join the two between like my mental hoarding and my physical. So I've got I've maybe got a way of reframing that, actually, because I think one of the reasons that we feel like that about clothes is because 
on that occasion we felt so good in that particular outfit and actually what we want to capture is that feeling of feeling that great in, in an outfit and um, there's an exercise in the book which talks about coming up with your kind of your sartorial branding formula and if you get it right if you match it to who you really are in essence then you can shop for a wardrobe of you know a capsule wardrobe of however many classic pieces all of which will give you that feeling and if you open your wardrobe doors onto 20 garments that all make you feel like that, you're far less likely to keep the one that you know doesn't really suit you and, and you won't ever wear again. I wonder as well if it's when you wear that standout thing, like the big yellow fluffy dress. I mean, I don't own that. That sounds hideous. But you know what I mean? Like something <laughs> that really is quite crazy. And I worry that a capsule wardrobe won't make me kind of have those big outfit moments, like the statement dress. But I really, I need to do that. Are you looking for wow? Is I'm that, looking worried that you'll for, lose the wow. And also, this is really sad, and I'm regretting even admitting this already, but I think in the age of social media, you want to kind of capture like a new outfit for a new day, for a new wedding. Like I can't wear the same dress to a wedding because I worry that I'll blur the memories. Of wearing that same Gosh, dress. how interesting. That is interesting. <laughs> what um, should she do, Sheila? I mean, an, uh, an approach to that could be swapping with your friends. So swapping statement pieces, for, you know, borrowing for a specific occasion. So if you're, one of your friends does have a big yellow fluffy dress and that's really what you want to wear, then um, you certainly wouldn't forget the time that you uh, borrowed that. But um, also I think, you know, there's a great joy in styling a classic piece a completely different way. I also feel True. like the rise, definitely the rise in renting things. Yes. I know that that's been a negative connotation for kind of, you know, millennials who just Airbnb and Uber around and don't own anything physical. But I also feel like that could maybe solve things as well. I think if you're into one-off statements, yeah, mm. it probably would be a good a good solution. But I remember taking a summer dress. It was a, a V-neck, summer, sleeveless summer dress, sort of 50 style with a slightly A-line skirt and... I decided uh, I was going to a summer wedding and I thought, you know, what, I'm going to restyle this. And I sewed tiny silver beads all over the flower print that it was on. And I paired it with a smart little uh, 40s style black jacket and uh, red heels, red lipstick. And it didn't look like a floaty, cottony summer dress. It totally went into that sort of 40s vibe. And of course, that has become my standout memory of what I wore to that wedding. I love that. That sounds so that. creative. That sounds amazing. And then you could tell that story too. That's it. It's got a story to tell. So as well as, I, I like how you call it a clutter-free nirvana. So as well as our wardrobes, what do most people like to tackle when they're decluttering? Well, my ideal is for every single room to have a sense of flow to it. I couldn't prescribe a clutter recipe for you because the way that you use your house is completely unique. I mean, even if you were the same age and the same life circumstances as me and you lived in a pretty similar house... Your rituals, your drinking coffee with the Sunday papers in the sunny nook, you know, on a Sunday morning, that may be completely different to mine. Maybe I read in bed instead. If either of us have a clutter problem with that, the papers are going to end up in a completely different place. Mm. It's a completely different problem, a different log kind of logjam. Mm. So the approach in the book is a kind of a blueprint that helps you work out your personal formula for becoming clutter-free. Mm. So asking of yourself what's important to you and making the house work for you. I think you said, like, working it for you. Yeah, I mean, you make little vignettes. I mean, for instance, I like a house to welcome me into doing the things that I like doing. If I had that Sunday morning coffee 
paper's ritual. Mm. What I like to do ideally is find my favourite nook for doing that and set it up properly with the chair and the place for my coffee and and then that chair is going to beckon to me to do that little ritual. It's going to encourage mm. me in that self-care. Rooms for me are, they, they contain little scenes. What's your scene, Emma? Because I know you work from home and you've written your second book as well. Have you got your writer's dream office scene is that set no. up for you no, no I feel I mean I'm having a nervous breakdown internally right now because <laughs> I just got home from holiday for a two-week holiday and like my flat right now you would you would disown me so this just is met a perfect me. moment then um so you can go yeah. home tonight and set a scene yeah definitely and I think for me it's just finding that balance like you say because you know time is precious like you say and I feel like sometimes putting too much pressure on being tidy and making sure everything's all right makes me more stressed instead of just like leaving it for a bit. So actually last night I could have done it, I could have decluttered, but I was like, no, no, I'm going to go to bed and tackle it tonight. So I think tidier people probably would have done that earlier. When you're sitting down, regardless of where you are, because you're travelling quite a lot, what do you like to have around you? What do you need? Um, I think I can kind of crack on with things kind of anywhere. Like, I'm very adaptable and I'm into star signs and it's one of my traits what for a Gemini. 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 And they're very, they're meant to be like social chameleons who can adapt anywhere. People that don't believe in horoscopes are just like rolling their eyes right now. But yeah, I'm, I'm someone that can just sort of blend in and I've always been like that even as a child. Like, my mum would say that I could just fall asleep anywhere. Like, just give me a wooden chair, I'd just be asleep. <laughs> and I think, yeah, I'm just not very particular. Like, just give me my laptop. Uh, you know, I've got all my software on there. I've got my so, headphones. So do you think it's important to you to be tidy? Because it isn't to everyone. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sort of the neat freak that goes around marking people out of 10 when I enter their house and see how tidy they are. I mean, if, yeah. they're, if they're happy, I'm happy. Yeah, and, and I think... I think there's a line, though, because, you know, there's that article that went around and, that you know, that thing. I don't know if it's a myth that, like, creative people are really messy. And it kind of gave people, like, kind of, it took people off the hook a bit. Mm. I'll have a messy desk. I, you know, if my boss tells me off, I'll tell them that I'm creative. Well, I, I hope don't you, know, I hope you I won't don't... mind me interjecting at this point that my, uh, I also wrote a book called Organising for Creative People. Well, there we go. So is, I don't know if about... I believe that you need to be messy to be yeah, creative. Yeah, it's a yeah. huge myth. And actually, I think it does creative people a big disservice because, hey, you're a business and you need to interact with businesses you need to have a, a business friendly interface and so my book's not just about physical that stuff like tidying studios and working efficiently in them of course but things like uh, setting up structures around self-promotion cataloging legal stuff how to streamline your paperwork and all that kind of stuff so it, it, yeah I agree with you there is a line there's a line where and for me the line is when it gets in the way yes and also for me you know it's mental and physical, isn't it? So, and also digital, because I think you can have a very clean and very spick and span home life and home home. But all, but if your emails are a mess and your desktop is overloading and you've got like a hundred tabs open and mm. your mind is whirring, it doesn't matter how clean your house is. I feel like I put a lot of time and energy into my digital kind of world just because you know, like we all do, I live there. Absolutely, um, Sheila. Could you tell us a little bit how you got started and how you got interested in clutter busting and if this is a something that you knew about as a kid, were you just a, an organised and thoughtful no, I was, child? I was a wreck. <laughs> I was a wreck. And the reason is my mother was a hoarder and a shopaholic. 
and we grew up in this huge, really old, run-down Victorian house, and we'd taken over two floors of it. Yeah, I mean, it was utter, utter chaos. And, of course, as a child, you absorb what's going on around you, and I hated the chaos, but I also had not learned... This is why I refer to it as a blueprint. I had not learned any kind of routines, any kind of blueprints for being tidy at all. And all I saw modelled for me was the huge frustrated tear your hair out crash diet clear out which lasted two days and in which after which no one could find anything and went around <laughs> complaining so yeah I was absolutely utterly hopeless and of course then as Emma said I became self-employed I became a world music singer I uh, wrote my own stuff I had a publishing company and a production company and licensed my work to Peter Gabriel's real world records I was touring and I was managing myself. I was doing a lot of the legal work myself. And um, even though that's not a kind of mixed portfolio, as you say, you've got you've got so many bosses in effect, you know. And I spent years being miserable at the utter chaos in my house and trying to work around it. I had to develop a way that was not about being house proud, it was about saving time. So, and I found myself reading clutter book after clutter book and feeling really, really dissatisfied with this assumption that I wanted to spend my Saturday afternoon tidying up or that I wanted to do that at the end of the day when I was absolutely exhausted, or I'd come back from a gig, you know, who wants to tidy up when you've come back from a gig? It's just, it it didn't seem realistic to me, and it seemed aimed at a certain sort of person who had a certain lifestyle, which wasn't me. And then I noticed that I never lost my toothbrush. And I noticed that most clutterholics never lost their toothbrush. And I realised that in that one tiny daft example, there was a perfect blueprint for keeping something in the right place where you needed it and never having to tidy it up and never losing it. And I thought, well, if I can expand that to every item I own, then I will never have to tidy up. And then when you realised it was working for you, did you then go to your friends or loved ones and start... How did it sort of trickle to the people you loved and then become the book? Well, they asked me. I mean, I I don't think it's right to sort of go around saying, well, you could be more tidy. (laughs) If people are happy, you know... Fair enough. Some of my friends, since I've written the book, are kind of, oh, you can't come round because my house is untidy now. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to provoke that kind of reaction. But people would call round, completely unannounced, and the house would be absolutely tidy. And this would happen over and over and over. And then they, they sort of went, what is your secret? And so I started to explain. And then I developed voice problems as a singer. I developed a pain condition. And, um, you know, it just seemed the right time to to write and for for writing to become my new voice. I'm just going to read a little bit that I really like from Banish Clutter Forever, your book. The reason that organising your house feels overwhelming is that each of these decisions is a creditor and all of them are presenting their bills to you at once and each one of them is going to get in your way until you pay what you owe. When people read that, it's funny because we were talking about being, you know, many different bosses, many different hats and all these constant decisions to make. So if I'm someone, I'm getting your book now and I walk into my house armed with with your book, 
which which where do I start? What do I start doing? When when I wrote the first draft, uh, people complained that I went through the kind of philosophy and the, the theory of how the system worked, and then they didn't actually get to any practical stuff till page sixty. So I rejigged it, and so the, the sort of short introduction and a first chapter explaining basically what you'll get from the book, and then the second chapter is on bathrooms, and it's uh, an exercise around the bathroom you use the most, and. The idea is to demonstrate in a couple of hours and over the following couple of weeks that this system will work for you without you having to plough through the whole book to check. And so you you do the bathroom chapter and you don't necessarily understand why it's working, but you get to experience the fact that it's working. And then that's the impetus for you to go and understand the, the system properly in the next four chapters and to and to carry on through the house and also with bathrooms as well if you don't work from home it tends to be the place you start your day the place you end your day so it can be really powerful just tackling that one room mm. what do you say to people when they say I'm, I'm committed to, to following your book through what do I do about my loved ones or the people I share my house with what, what do you say to them what if they're not on board that. Yeah, I, I think that's a difficult one. I had a, a recent review on Amazon to, for the book. Um, it was a millennial, a disabled lady who was living with her parents who were hoarders and they refused to let her throw out her teddy bears and she was in her 30s. So I think if you're not completely in control of the space or you're not at least partially in control of the space, it can be difficult. With loved ones, I think lead by example, you know, don't tidy up their stuff or throw anything out because you'll only antagonise. But it's it's amazingly infectious that, you know, if you take a space that you largely have responsibility for, whether it's the kitchen or the shed or uh, your side of the bedroom or what have you, and you just, you know, organise things and your loved one gets a chance to experience you just saving loads of time and energy, then it can inspire them. I've seen it more than once. It can inspire them to, to then ask you what your secret is and and, uh, and you can rope them in that way, hopefully. Mm. It's always best when people come to you, isn't it? When you make a life mm. changes, not, not to sort of shout about it, just quietly get on with it. Yeah. Reap the benefits for yourself, yourself mm -hmm. and let them catch on. As it, and then it's almost their idea. Let them think it's yeah, their idea. Yeah, it's that buy-in thing, isn't it? You haven't imposed anything on anyone. They're, they've come to you when, they're, when they feel receptive and they're ready to actually take it in. I'm Melissa Hemsley, and this is Live Life Better. Now we've got a reading from A Monk's Guide to a Cleaner House and Mind by Shuke Matsumoto. What is cleaning? Japanese people have always regarded cleaning as more than a common chore. It's normal here for elementary and junior high school students to clean their classroom together, although I've heard that this isn't done in schools abroad. It probably has to do with the notion in Japan that cleaning isn't just about removing dirt. It's also linked to cultivating the mind. If you visit a temple, you'll find the premises to be extremely well-tended. Naturally, this is to welcome visitors, but another reason is that the act of cleaning is an important ascetic practice for the monks living and training there. Each space is cleaned, tidied, and polished beautifully. While training at a temple in Kyoto, even the slightest error I made in folding or stacking clothes resulted in being given a pep talk by one of my seniors. If you ever have the chance, observe how monks clean their temple grounds. Dressed in Samoe robes, the traditional workwear of Buddhist monks, they'll be silently engaged in their designated chores and appear cheerful and well. 
Cleaning isn't considered burdensome, or something you don't really want to do and wish to get over with as soon as possible. They say that one of Buddha's disciples achieved enlightenment doing nothing but sweeping while chanting, clean off dust, remove grime. Cleaning is carried out not because there is dirt, but because it's an ascetic practice to cultivate the mind. Rubbish. What is rubbish exactly? Things that are dirty, worn out, unusable, no longer useful, no longer needed, and so on. And yet nothing starts out as rubbish. Things become rubbish when they are treated as rubbish. In Buddhism, it is believed that nothing has a physical form, tai. That is, there is no substance in anything in and of itself. Motainai, the Japanese term for wasteful, originates from this word. But if something has no substance, how does it exist? Things exist because all things relate with each other to support each other's existence. Humans are the same. The people and things in your life are what makes you who you are. This is why it's not for you to judge whether something is useful or to designate things you can't use as rubbish. They say that the eminent monk Renyo picked up a scrap of paper lying in the hallway one day and said, even this scrap of paper is given to us by the Buddha and must not be wasted. The Japanese idea of not being wasteful is not just about avoiding waste. It also embodies a spirit of gratitude towards objects. People who don't respect objects don't respect people. For them, anything no longer needed is just rubbish. A child who grows up watching their parents act this way comes to perceive not just things, but friends in the same way as well. Within any object can be found the tremendous time and effort put into it, the heart of the person who made it. It's important to remember to feel grateful for this when cleaning or tidying and not handle things carelessly. Yet we cannot store everything in a cupboard because we do not want to be wasteful. Some things, despite being a little old, still have some life left in them. Elsewhere, they would have a place to shine, but instead, they are often shut away and forgotten, ending their lives without seeing the light of day. This is rather sad. Be grateful for the things that have served you and give them to people who could use them, where they can have a purpose and shine again. Appreciate the things you have right in front of you. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. You're listening to the Live Life Better podcast from Virgin and Penguin Living. Huge thanks to Shuke Matsumoto, a monk's guide to a cleaner house and mind. And now back into the studio with Sheila Chandra and Emma Gannon. Emma, mm -hmm. Control-Alt-Delete. Um, tell us how that book came to be, where, where it all began, and do you like writing books? I do. I, I do like writing books. I don't necessarily like 
how much they take over because I think anyone who's written a book, I mean, I don't want to generalise, but you're obsessed with it for a long time. You know, it's all you think about. Everything that you read is like, oh, could I put that in or could that be an addition to this sentence? Or, And, uh, you know, I have to really try not to talk about it all the time because, you know, not to be cruel, but, like, you love the book the most. Everyone else kind of loves it when it comes out and they might buy it and I'm sure they will enjoy it, but, they're, you know, they're not as... It's not taking over as much as when you're writing it. So, yeah, I do. So with Control-Alt-Delete, that came out mm, 2016 now, near the end of the year. Essentially, it's a sort of tongue-in-cheek, part memoir, part sort of parody, I guess, of a non-fiction memoir spanning 10 years and spanning a millennial growing up online. So, obviously... I would not write this incredibly in-depth memoir because I actually wrote it when I was 26, so that's sort of the point, though, is that in internet years, things move so quickly that my idea for it was, well, I am going to capture these 10 years, actually, kind of from early 2000s up until about 2010 because in that time it felt like so much happened online. It was like hundreds of years in internet speak. So, yeah, it was, it was fun. It's kind of a chronological look at the internet that was obviously founded in 1989. I was born in 1989 and it's sort of that's, that's the format of the book, really. I absolutely love your book and I think I had read it the first time I met you. We met at a, um, an internet event, didn't we? You you seemed very wise about the internet, and I like I really like this bit about internet addiction. Can you read it out? Angry think pieces, tweets, articles, ideas, and opinions are directly accessed via eyeballs every time we log into our social media feeds, and if we're not careful, they can seep into our brains every minute of every day. On average, I normally have about fifteen tabs open on Google Chrome, all things I feel I should read to better myself. This is my daily cycle of internet consumption: highs met with lows. But how can we be sure of what's important and what's worth listening to when everyone is shouting all at once? So now, how many years on? Two. Two. How do you feel now? Because it's moved on exponentially more. I'm completely confused by it all. And I actually, I now, I don't know if anyone else does this, I now turn it all off at 9.30. Yes, I don't do the whole you know, don't have any screen time before at least four hours before you go to bed or whatever's recommended. I try and definitely cut down. I don't have my phone near my pillow anymore. I thought, that is so weird that I sleep with my phone like right next to my head. So that's sort of well away from me now. Still in the bedroom, but just like I have to get up to get it. And I just make sure that I'm conscious of what I'm doing I think when you get that glazed over look and you're just in a hole scrolling and you're almost like out of your body just floating I just catch myself and just switch it off now but I think it takes time and I think it takes just being really self-aware of your own body and like knowing what you're doing because yeah I think you can get really trapped and there's a whole new etiquette and and sort of um, in social terms the impact of carrying internet around in your pocket is so huge, as you say. I mean, it's happened in a way. It's a kind of an evolution of hundred years of years that's happened in ten, 
And it feels to me like our etiquette and our manners need to catch up. I mean, I can't stand mm-hmm. it if someone invites me out to dinner or a cafe or something that has they're scrolling through their phone. It's the ru- but then, you know, I'm 53 and it feels to me like the rudest thing in the world. It's like if they got their office paperwork out and started filing. Mm. Um, you know, it's do you want to talk to me or not? But um, I agree. It's it's someone saying my phone is more important than you. Yeah. In your face. But <laughs> it's 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 such an addictive kind of technology. I can I can understand the other side where people they kind of have to catch themselves and make it a rule almost before they notice that that's what they're Mm. doing. One of the things I was interested in for this spring clean episode is a lot of people saying, right, well, I might have one job and it might be a job that doesn't leave me much time. But what different things can I add a value to my life? What extra hobbies can I take on? Or perhaps people are thinking of starting a new business, starting a company alone or with somebody else. And Emma, you've done lots. And I know you're in your new book as well. You talk a lot about the bravery that comes with it. Yes. Well, I mean, I was going to say that saying no to things is like the best cluttering, you know, tactic ever, because saying yes to everything is just very stressful and you'll, you'll, you'll end up resenting yourself and everyone else. But if someone is wanting to start something kind of now, whether it's fun or whether it's work related, I think you have to take the pressure off it because I think all good things start from a seed of excitement and I hate the word passion now. I don't know why. It reminds me of applying for jobs when I was 18. I'm passionate. But you know what I mean? Being passionate about it and being energetic. And I think all those things come from not feeling kind of locked in and bogged down. So an example is I've got a lot going on at the moment that is, you know, paid work that I do, but I still wanted to do a side project that I launched um, a while ago, which was a second podcast. It's called Get It Off Your Breasts, and it's just like a roundtable panel show with loads of women because we're sick of basically no one really giving women like all a lot of time on panel shows. And um, we just made a rule. We said, right, we're going to start a WhatsApp group between us, the producer and, and us two, and it, we just said... And we, we start we started making money from it now, but we just said, let's not treat this like work. Let's just promise to each other that we don't. Even if there's loads of emails coming in, even if we have to ask each other to do stuff out of our other schedule. And it's just kind of putting that out there as like a kind of seal of approval mm-hmm. of just this is going to be fun really helped. Group motto. Yeah. Have fun. Yeah, because I think, like you said, working with other people... If you're not naturally a team player, that can be really tricky and it can start getting quite sour quite quickly and you didn't do that and you did that and I'm doing more of this. Whereas if you treat it as sort of this fun side thing, it can actually grow way more, I think, than if we were being putting pressure on it. Mm. And if I had a tip for that, I'd say uh, kind of respect your own inner impetus. Something that's really important when you work for yourself is the fact that you often do have the freedom but don't exploit the fact that you have the freedom to do things at your own pace all of us grow up you know nursery and then school and then university or jobs or whatever working to someone else's pace get this essay in by the 17th you know and it's not about when you feel so full of knowledge that you're spilling those words out on the page for that essay Uh, but something you can relearn as you and it really really helps the quality of your work is to kind of respect that little 
inner voice, that impetus that tells you when something is still gestating and when something is ripe. So, okay, it's spring, but for you, it might still be creative winter. Mm. It might be that you're still pregnant with that idea and you're kind of nursing it. You think of it every so often and you kind of embellish it and it grows as an idea and you read a little article or you meet someone and it adds another little dimension to it. But, you know, there will come a point where your instinct tells you it feels ripe and that ripeness can really be a driving force and I think actually that's where real passion comes from not when it's used as a, as a buzzword but it's when your instinct is saying this is great and I really want to do it yeah mm. and you have to trust yourself don't you to kind of know that you're onto something mm. in private because I feel like we're in this world as well where you know maybe you get an idea for a novel and then you go and tweet got an idea for a novel <laughs> yeah gonna go Coming and start soon. writing it and it's just I just think that for me kills it and I need to just make sure that I'm cracking on. You know, that, you know that why it kills it confidence. though. Yeah. It's because once once you've talked about it, your brain, your subconscious mind thinks, oh, I've done it. Ticked it off, yeah. Gosh. I know so a lot don't of people talk about it. use it as let motivation, it but yeah. I mean, yeah, personally, I just feel like I've let myself off the hook a bit and also sharing it before it's ready, I feel like, I don't know, you've kind of ruined it already. Because this, kind is, of yours. this is the thing, isn't it? Now we share so much that actually maybe it's nice to let something brew a little bit and then not have to, every time we meet up with a friend, be like, oh, it's at this stage or no, it's at this stage or, or You have know to what's sell really interesting mm. about this conversation is that, you know, ostensibly we're talking about the digital world, but these are secrets that creative people have known forever. These are sort of artists, sort of almost Zen mystery type secrets that we've known because you know hey the record company is knocking on your door and wants your your next album yesterday and you have to be strong enough to say you know what it's not ripe yet mm. and uh, mm. i mean you said that didn't you the saying no and something that we've all touched on a little bit but i think is so important to say now at the end of the show is the listening to your gut feeling because i know when i am out of whack with my gut when i stop listening to it and listening to everyone else or mm. listening to my come on voices that it things that's when I start to panic and that's when I start to be less creative and that's when I start to make panic decisions and you mentioned here your decision debt um mm -hmm. Sheila so I think really important is listening to your gut and I think if you don't know what that feels like I mean what should people do if they don't know what their gut's saying schedule in time where you do what I call doing nothing and this is something that clowns learn they schedule in time where they are not entertained they are not doing a list of jobs it is free time for them to literally listen to the impetus inside them that says now I want to stretch my arm now I want to make a cup of tea and they spend 20 minutes 30 minutes an hour whatever just following that impetus and it gets you back in tune via your own viscerality into what your body and your gut are telling you yeah Emma so back to your day-to-day -day, what tools have you got for decluttering and making the most of each day so one of the things that I made sure I did was not to scatter out kind of meetings throughout the week and things like that. So when you think about a pocket of time, you have to really make sure that you are scheduling in the time it takes to prepare for the meeting, the time it takes to travel there, the time it takes for someone to maybe for it to go on longer than you expected, for people to pay the bill, for people to get you to get the bus home or and all of that stuff. And um, when I first became self-employed, I just got so excited with all of these options that I just really wasn't categorising things at all. So now I make sure that I have, I have strict Days. I don't have strict days for one project, but it's just one day where it's just a day of meetings, getting that all of out of the way, because obviously I do work from home, making sure that everything just in my diary kind of does follow a pattern. So 
depending on the project, I will allocate a day to it. I think also knowing what to say yes and no to. So actually I work with someone who kind of acts now as sort of like an in-between agent type for things that aren't related to my book. And um, she asks me if she, if she thinks I want to do it and she won't necessarily put the kind of fee on it straight away because that allows me to take a step back and know that do I really want to do it and do I want to do it because it's paid really well or do I want to do it because actually I got a gut instinct that this is the right project for me and so for me that works really well because I don't want to be sidetracked by things that just look shiny I want to take on a project that really matters and it's a bonus if everything else comes with it and I might turn it down if it's rubbish pay as well so I used to not be a fan really of having an out of office I just thought it was a bit you know I just thought well I'm never really out of the office I don't have an office so I can't be out of it I'll just check my phone every now and again even when I'm on holiday I used to just not do it and now I actually do it more than ever and I'll do it when I'm having a busy period I'll do it when actually I want to redirect emails to someone else I'll do it when um, I just know that actually I'm having a day off and I'm, I'm at home and yes I've got my laptop there but I just need to distance myself and I think it's a mental distancing tool not necessarily one that really matters you know mm -hmm. someone will if they're really interested the out of office won't mean anything but for me it really means something mm. it's so, a signal yeah. to you isn't it a yeah. bit of you time one thing that I do as well now is I if if there's a lot going on and I think a phone call would benefit I say can we just have a phone call and I found that can really help save time and also make force me to almost force me in a gentle way to think about what do I really want to ask that person what do I think they want from me and I find for some things not all it can really declutter for me mm -hmm. a huge thanks again to my guest Emma thanks for having me and to Sheila great to be here all the book titles we've talked about today are out now control alt delete how I grew up online by Emma Gannon Banish Clutter Forever, How the Toothbrush Principle Will Change Your Life by Sheila Chandra. And A Monk's Guide to a Cleaner House and Mind by Shuke Matsumoto. As always, you can find out more about the authors on this show over at virgin.com. Plus, we've got more motivational podcasts and tips. We'd love to hear how this show has inspired you to live life better. So get involved with the conversation on Twitter at Penguin Living UK using the hashtag LiveLifeBetter. Live Life Better is a Pixie production for Virgin and Penguin Living. Join us again in two weeks' time. From me, Melissa Hemsley, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>